Hello and welcome to The Uncertainty Principle. It's a science comedy podcast brought to you by the Curio Network. I am, as always, your physicist co-host, Dr. Ben McAllister. And I'm your marine biologist co-host, Dr. Taryn Lovenstein. Each month, one of us researches a science topic and then teaches the other about it in real time. They're kind of like a sounding board. And it's not just a boring science lecture. We look at the overlaps of the science with history, politics, and culture, and we use those things as a lens to explore the science. Uh, sometimes we have special guests or games or other things coming up in the middle of the show. This episode, we have a uh, competition announcement winner. Uh, competition winner announcement, I suppose. So stay tuned for that. But anyway, that's enough of that. This month, Taryn has been doing the research, and I have no idea what the topic's are. About. So let's dive right in. Taryn, what am I learning about today? Okay, Ben, I'm excited because I went a little bit outside of my comfort zone today. I nice. normally am like really in biology land, you know, that's yeah. where I'm comfortable. But today we're doing something a little different. Today we're talking about the history of alchemy. Oh, <laughs> so, shit. That's cool. Yeah. Do you know anything about alchemy? So it's like a history-focused episode. That's cool. History of science thing. That's nice. Um, yeah. Alchemy. As far as I understand, alchemy is like the um, like the, the pseudoscience, I guess, that I know like many like real-world scientists used to be into. I think famously Isaac Newton. Yes. Um, and the idea was that they could convert other metals or materials into gold and that was called alchemy and i guess it's kind of related to chemistry which is the modern science of elements well damn <laughs> yeah that's pretty much what it is and you already know like one oh, of the most cool. famous you know examples of like people who we didn't even know were alchemists but definitely studied alchemy um i think oh that's cool yeah and and i think like at least for me when i first you know, thought of this topic, it was like, is this even, can we even do this on a science podcast? But yeah, because it has more like, you know, magic, you know, Harry Potter vibes in the modern imagination. Oh, Harry Potter vibes? Yeah. Harry Potter. Oh. Harry, oh, well, d don't you know it? <laughs> We're gonna, I'm not even gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna do my bad Damn, British I love, accent. I love your shit British accent. It's so good. It's I, one of my favorite I've been trying for so many years and I can't do it, but you will be treated to that or elements of it later on because we will touch a little bit on Harry Potter. But the point that I want to make with this episode... Wait, a bit on Harry Potter? Yeah. Oh, fucking I, I mean, we, we're, we gotta. We, you can't talk about it and not. But the point is that even though, like, for me, my imagination, a lot of people's imaginations of alchemy have to do more with magic, as you said, like, alchemy... Is, was actually like a respected way of understanding the world and actually laid the foundations for many elements of modern science, including elements of chemistry as well as even medicine. So it's a pretty cool topic and I'm really excited to get yeah, into it. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's not like that crazy because we know like elements do change through radioactive decay processes. Like, well, we know that now, decays. but like. Yeah, but like, yeah, especially like, yeah, so it turns out like elements can change from one thing to another. So, you know, they were sort of right about that. And yeah, I mean, at the time, they probably, like, why wouldn't you believe that it was possible to make elements turn into other elements? Anyway, that's exactly. cool. I'm yeah. ready. Strap in. Strap on. Give me the good news. <laughs> okay. Um, so, when many people, when they talk about alchemy, um, a lot of them are talking about a particular body of work that was conducted in the Middle Ages, but there's actually concepts of alchemy that stretch back thousands of years and... Um, you know, the history is a little obscure, but um, they believe that it may have originated in ancient Egypt. So this is something that's been around for much longer than many people think it has. Um, in terms of historically speaking, there were at least three strands of alchemy that were sort of 
maybe independently formed, maybe interrelated. Um, one that was based in China, one that was based in India, and one that was based um, in the West, primarily in the Middle East and Europe. And while each of these three strands had different, you know, flavors, different uh, underpinning concepts, there was a few uniting principles. And so, um, as you were kind of referring to earlier, alchemy was um, a way for people to try and understand the nature of matter, like what is stuff and how can you change it? Um, right. So it, it wasn't, it wasn't just about turning shit into gold. No, it was a way of trying to understand the world of, you know, the world around them. And so what's really interesting is that it was kind of a blending of what we would call philosophy with elements of spirituality. So it wasn't just this sort oh, of hard nosed wow. science that we understand, but like a full way of understanding what is stuff, what is life. You know, kind of big questions. So that's how there was that interesting. Yeah, so it was there. kind of like scientific philosophy, maybe, or like an, an attempt to sort of scientize philosophy a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know if there was a concept of like scientizing things at the time. It was just them saying, "Well, what stuff?" Oh, you're you're and, talking and very, what can very. What do to it? Right, you're talking like the ancient uh, alchemy, not so much the um like Middle Ages alchemy, which right, okay. Well, even like up t towards closer to the Middle Ages, there was still a lot of elements of spirituality involved in it, and it's. It's a really cool concept. So, like, to, to exemplify that, um, you were talking earlier about how they were interested in transforming some metals or substances into other metals. Um, but the system that they had is that they thought there were some metals that were more pure than others. So, like, you had gold, which is the most pure metal that you could get. And then silver was sort of like a close second, and they called those the noble okay. metals. But then you had these less pure metals that were known as base metals. And those were things like mercury and copper and lead. And so, but they didn't see those metals as like separate elements like we see them today. But in instead, they saw those base metals as sort of like physically and spiritually crappy versions of gold. And so if they could refine those base metals through different processes, then they could create the spiritually perfect metal that was gold. And they call right. that process transmutation. Yeah. Right. Okay. So that's part of the alchemy. Yeah. So like when I hear alchemy, my mind instantly goes like, oh, transmuting things into gold. Um, but I guess it's much, much broader than that. I mean, yeah, like definitely the, the, the forming of the gold was like a big part of it. But before I get there, I did want to just delve into some of the, like how we know about this stuff. Um, cause again, like history, this is a new space for me, but, um, just looking at, for example, the etymology of the word, mm. like where does the word alchemy come from? Some people think it could represent the black earth, which would represent the uh, fertile soils on the Nile River in Egypt. But we're not sure because it turns out that um, alchemists were like pretty secretive about their work. So you know how now like you as a scientist, you might go and spend some time in another lab to like meet people and network with them and learn their different techniques. And then you go back to your lab and you'd like bring all that information. Yeah. They were like, not, they weren't into that. The alchemists, they were like very secretive uh, and didn't really want to share their work. Okay. Which was partially where this sort um, of, because yeah, I guess it gets closer to magic and stuff. And they're like, I'm a sorcerer. Well, yeah. So my sorcerer's works. <laughs> Well, no, it was because they were worried about things like, you know, the church was pretty suspicious of alchemy. Um, they saw it as possibly anti-Christian or even witchcraft. So mm. maybe probably in their best interest to protect themselves by not sharing that information. Um, but also because 
They believed they were dealing with really powerful stuff and they didn't want it to fall into the wrong hands. So they used to conceal their findings in these like elaborate like allegories and they had used these weird symbols. So you could read a book that was written by an alchemist, but they used this weird like code. And so you wouldn't be able to understand it unless you knew what code they were using. So it's actually pretty difficult to like research this stuff because they wrote everything down so confusingly. It's also kind of neat that they use like codes and, and symbols and stuff because it does make it feel a bit like a like real life, like, I don't know, like fantasy novel, like a young adult fantasy thing. Like you could find like an old alchemist's tome and it would contain like the, the secrets yeah. of their research, but like encoded in riddles and poetry and shit. I, I think that's, uh, that's pretty dope. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's very like Da Vinci code, you know, yes. like, oh, we got to decipher these symbols. And I don't remember the plot of that book, but we got it. We got to solve the code. I think it was a lot about deciphering <laughs> symbols. Yeah, I don't remember. But anyway, the, the point is that they were like really protective of their knowledge and the the great work or their magnum opus is what you've already talked about. So it was creating this thing called the Philosopher's Stone. And so the Philosopher's Stone, they believed, was this red waxy substance that could turn those base metals into gold. Um, it's also called the Elixir of Life, and it was also believed that it could be used to achieve immortality. Right. Which is pretty cool. That's where it touches on the Harry Potter thing. That's where we get into the Harry Potter vibes. But also, I wanted to pause here because I feel like being able to turn metal into gold is, like, probably good enough. Like, yeah. maybe that could just be one object and then a different object could give you immortality. Like, it just feels like a bit much to be like, oh, there's this one thing yeah, that not yeah, only yeah. will give you unlimited riches... But also, it'll make you live forever. It just, like, has bad infomercial energy to me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it does seem kind of, like, cure-all-y, right? Like, that should be a big tip-off. And, like, why would it have, like, another unrelated power? Like, I guess maybe the point is that they were alchemically related. Like, it would purify everything to its, like, highest level. Well, right? yeah. So it would purify other metals into gold and purify your body until it yeah, was, like, immortal. Yeah, but it... Like, that's definitely the theory behind it, and I see where they were coming from. But a little part of me was just like, really, man? It was going to do all those things at the yeah. same time. Why can't you have two different stones? Yeah, but also, like, I don't want to throw shade at <laughs> the alchemists, because, you know, I feel like there's still, in the modern day, people who are essentially trying to find some sort of elixir of life, whether that's, like, you know, the Austin Powers-style, like, cryogenic preservation. Yeah, or, like, or like Pete Evans. The- Who's Pete Evans? He's telling us the celebrity chef who's into, like, paleo diet and shit. Yeah, just, like, or different like, ways um, of... Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah. Gwyneth Paltrow's group. Just trying to, like, find your own elixir of life. So I'm like, okay, I can't, like, be too mad at them for it. I just thought it was a bit much to try and, try and do everything with one product. Like, maybe diversify. Mm. But, so, alchemists were out there trying to discover the Philosopher's Stone... And and now, Ben, we are taking a turn down diagonally. Oh, absolutely. So we can talk about Harry Potter. So just before we jump into the Harry Potter, give me, like, where are we in time, right? So you said that, like, early civilizations all had some kind of concept of alchemy that were maybe interrelated. Are we, like, when we're talking about the search for the Philosopher's Stone, does that date back to, like, early alchemy? Or is that specifically sort of rooted in, like, a, a period of alchemy? I mean, I think the term Philosopher's Stone would have evolved later, but there were definitely texts about, you know, the concept of achieving a very long life or immortality, you know, stretching back to those ancient times. Uh, it's just more they converged onto this one idea 
you know, later down the track. And, like, the people who, because you also mentioned, like, the church was suspicious of alchemy, right? So that means, like, okay, so, you know, many thousands of years later, like, when there was a church, they were suspicious of the people who were practicing yes. alchemy at that time. <laughs> but the people who were practicing alchemy mm-hmm. in, like, the Middle Ages, did they, like, draw their roots from the ancients? Were they, like, studying, like, as much old stuff as they could? Or was it kind of, like, did it sort of just, like, independently evolve and, like, pop up all over the world at all these different times? No, like, definitely there's interrelations. I mean, I didn't delve as deep into, like, the full transition, but, like, starting with, you know, basic metalworking, like, I think in even in ancient Egypt and, like, Greece areas, like, the process of just sort of, like, you know, heating up ore, like, different ores of metals to, like, purify them was considered almost like a sacred act. And so very much the, like, Middle Ages were building on texts from like many hundreds of years prior. It's like very cool stuff right. um, that it was able to like progress for so long. And I'll talk a little bit later about like how, you know, people in the mid- Middle Ages reacted to that, but like generally not super well. And that's why it's a bit fallen out of favor today, but like definitely was a respected thing, you know, further and further back you go. All right. Oh, right. So it wasn't like always like considered fringe. It was like, oh, they're an alchemist. They're very, ooh, wow. Okay, cool. Yeah. Nice. It's more now that we kind of think of it as like, oh, alchemy. Yeah. <laughs> that old thing. That old dumb thing that idiots did. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. All right. Well, take me, take me to Harry Potter world. So, okay. So I have a question for you now that we're here in Harry Potter world. What was the yep. first book called for you? Uh, the Philosopher's Stone, because I live in a country that isn't America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So for Australians listening who didn't know... The first book for us was called Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Stone. Which is just um, hilarious. Which is, so I actually looked into this because I was curious. Apparently, the U.S. publisher of the book thought that the Philosopher's Stone didn't sound magical enough and that people might mistake it for a book about philosophy and that yeah. sorcerers sounded more magical, which is why they changed it. But what pisses me off about that is that the Philosopher's Stone is this, like, concept yeah. that exists in history and has like yeah. a real legacy and historical significance and then they were just like oh screw all that just call it the sorcerer's stone people won't understand it so yeah, i know i love what that I'm says about their, their faith in the american audience that they were just like oh there's no way yeah. they'll understand like a concept of a philosopher's stone just call it the sorcerer's stone that's so good yeah but that meant that when you guys were reading it, it was like, oh yeah, the Philosopher's Stone, a thing that existed in history, so we don't need all this long exposition about it. Right, yeah. Yeah, but I also looked into, because I was then, you know, curious and in Harry Potter mode. So, in the first book, there's this scene where Hermione, Harry, and Ron, they sneak into the restricted section of the library to read about this dude called Nicholas Flamel. And I had always assumed that this was also just, like, a character that was made up as part of the oh. book. Turns out, no. He was actually a real person that's associated with the history of alchemy, which is like, what? How How did I not know this? Yeah, so it turns wow. out, um, it's, well, okay. So the thing is, it's a bit of a catfish because there was loads of actual alchemists in history. Like you said, Isaac Newton was somebody who studied alchemy. Right. Um, but for some reason in literary history, like... With not only Harry Potter, but, like, also, like, other major authors through history, for some reason have latched onto Nicholas Flamel as, like, the guy who made the Philosopher's Stone and lived forever. Right. It's, like, the plot point. Okay. But, like, it's all based on this 400-year-old rumor where he was just some regular French scribe who had a super boring life, he lived until his 70s, and then he died. And then for some reason... 
200 years later, people were like, did you know that that guy was immortal and also he's an alchemist? And and so, like, that proliferated. Wait, where did that come from? There was just some book where some guy was like, oh, yes, this is the text of Nicholas Flamel, who was actually an alchemist and, like, right. just kind of appeared out of nowhere in history. So, so all just... these authors are walking around thinking that he's an alchemist, I guess. Yeah, so just he just, like, kind of... He just kind of became, like, a legend after his death. And he wasn't, mm-hmm. like, is there, is there any history that suggests he was an alchemist? Not that I could find. So... He just was a dude. <laughs> He's just a dude. But I feel that like... That is so strange. It's so strange, and it also reveals one of the central flaws of this whole alchemy business to me, which is, like, if it works, then where's Nicholas? Where is he, guys? Why are you reading this 200 years later and you just accepted his fact but Nikki ain't around. <laughs> like, surely if he had discovered the Philosopher's Stone, you could just meet him yourself and he would tell well, you about it. Yeah, I mean, I guess, like, just loop back around on that. Like, anyone who hasn't, like, seen or read the Harry Potter book, like, I guess, like, it's implied in that that, like, Nicholas Fennell was this philosopher, I guess, or this alchemist who developed the Philosopher's Stone and then was immortal because he used it and then, I guess, just kind of, like, went into hiding and, like, just was like, no, I'm just going to be immortal and, like, he would just <laughs> show up every now and again to get some of the water that it made. Is that about right? Actually, I haven't read the first book in like one million years, so I don't actually remember. And they don't discuss it in the movie. But like, yes, I feel like, I guess the implication is that once they're immortal, they're like, I don't need you peasants goodbye forever. But you know, this was back in the 1600s. So you could literally say anything like, oh yeah, and then once he became immortal, he moved to India. And everyone would have to be like, (laughs) okay. I'll never go there. Hey, I guess you've he got did. The book, so I guess he moved to India. <laughs> yeah. So you're the one with the book, idiot. All right. Cool. Yeah. So that was my little Harry Potter aside. But it turns out there's like a rich, like real alchemy stuff that like was integrated into the books that I had no idea about. So no thanks to yeah. you, American publishers of the first book. Yeah. Wow. Fantastic. I didn't know that Nicholas Fennell yeah. was like a real character from history. I thought he yeah. was just the uh, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Okay. So. Back to real alchemists. Um, Yeah, go on. (laughs) So they were trying to create this philosopher's stone that could turn base metals into gold. And spoiler alert, they didn't do it. No! But it turns out... I know, I'm so sorry (laughs) to spoil things so early in the episode. But it turns out that on their way to trying to get to the philosopher's stone and refine these base metals, they used a lot of experimental techniques and observations that would form the basis of modern chemistry. So, for That's example, so cool. it's so cool. So we're going to talk about one. I love the idea that real science grew out of like this mystical pseudoscience. So they were like trying to like purify things into yeah. gold and purify their souls to be immortal. But then at the time, they just accidentally invented chemistry. <laughs> Well, you're going to love this this story because this is nuts. It's my favorite one that I researched. So uh, there was one would-be alchemist who accidentally discovered an element. So that's pretty cool. Um, so like for context, in ancient times, there was a couple of elements that they knew about. Obviously gold. They were pretty into that element. They loved uh, it. They were always trying to make it. They were really into it. They loved gold. I don't, I don't know why. <laughs> 
but they were really <laughs> okay. That's an interesting one that I've tried to understand for ages. Like, like because now it, it's so strange that like now in in the modern world, gold is actually really valuable because you can use it to make like yeah. electronics because it's a really good conductor and it doesn't erode and it's like like so like it has actual like utility and value now. Mm. But like in the olden <laughs> times. It just, like, was shiny, and people were like, ooh. <laughs> and, like, just, like, sh- shiny and rare. And so it was just, like, considered the most valuable shit. It's so bizarre. Anyway. Yeah, it, it's, it puzzles me, too. But so they, but they were really into it, and they were like, this is pure shit, it's shiny, and I want to make more of <laughs> it. Yeah. So they knew about gold. They knew about some other elements like iron and mercury and carbon and sulfur, but um, the element phosphorus was actually the first element to be discovered in modern times. And it was discovered by this alchemist who is called Hennig Brandt in 1669. And nice. it seems like at the time... Nice. <laughs> no. <laughs> I didn't even realize. Uh, so Brandt, this dude, <laughs> he, was, he was an alchemist and he was trying to discover the Philosopher's Stone. And it seemed like at the time, there was a lot of alchemists who thought that color was a really important part of the process of transmutation when you would change one substance into another. Okay. And so the thinking went that if you were trying to make something gold, then maybe you should start with something that's similar in color, like being yellow. So basically what I'm saying is that Henning Brandt tried to make gold by boiling a bunch of pea. Oh, damn. He nasty. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you don't know he how nasty. Nasty boy. <laughs> yes. So this guy got about 1,500 gallons of pee into oh his basement lab. <laughs> Which no. is like, how Henning. did he get that? Henning, Where sweetie. Where did he get <laughs> What are you doing? <laughs> I just want to know how people reacted when he was like, can I have your pee, please? It's for science. Well, it's for alchemy. It's for alchemy. Oh, my God. (laughs) And like, oh, oh, if it was all yellow, Uh they're not hydrated So, well, I have a quote. I have a quote from the instructions. Apparently, he would, quote, take a good large quantity of new-made urine of beer drinkers and evaporate it gently to the consistency of honey. Oh, oh. oh, I just it's gagged. So vivid. <laughs> I, just, I just actually Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. But you so can imagine awkward. what his lab smelled like. Oh. 1,500 oh. gallons of it. Oh. Of gently so. boiled piss. Oh. <laughs> well, no. So what he would do is first he would let it evaporate and like stew until it released a strong odor. Which is disgusting. I would say that happened pretty quickly. (laughs) Well, apparently he would leave it out to rot for weeks. Uh, Henry Brandt. So anyway. Brandt, the nasty piss boy. Hennig. Sorry, it's Hennig. Hennig Brandt. I think I'm saying that right. Of history. Yeah. History's (laughs) nastiest piss boy. (laughs) Hennig Brandt. No, but he's a good guy. Okay, so it was super gross, but... He would he would evaporate the pee until it smelled bad, and then he would boil it down to a tar-like substance. Then he would heat it again with sand and charcoal as hot as he could make it, and eventually a white vapor would form and condense into these thick white droplets that glowed in the dark. And he was like, what is this? 
It's definitely not the Philosopher's Stone, but he ended up naming it Phosphorus, which is Latin for light-bearing. So, like, that's how... That's how phosphorus was discovered. So he just, like, like accidentally dude. distilled phosphorus out of pee and became yep. a scientist. Wow, what a hero. <laughs> okay, I'm turned around on Hennig Brandt. <laughs> My oh. God. There really is science everywhere, isn't there? You there is. Really, you can really... Oh, and, and also, as a scientist, Taryn, doesn't it, like, annoy you? I was going to say piss you off, but decided to go against it. Like, how easy it, how easy it used to be. Like, right? You could discover elements, like, just fucking around. Just, like, accidentally... Accidentally, by fucking around with some piss, become a famous goddamn actual scientist yeah. who discovered an uh-huh. element. Ugh. Yep, that it's is really infuriating. annoying. <laughs> we gotta, we gotta do like lots of a lot of work and like yeah. experiments and oh. all this stuff. And he was just like, "Nah, I'm just gonna boil a bunch of beer drinkers' pee and become a well-known scientist." God damn. Okay. <laughs> oh well. god. But I'm not done with this story because it turns out that um, a byproduct of the reaction that he was doing is actually carbon monoxide. So <laughs> this Whoa. experiment could have gone. Very poorly for Hennig, but it just didn't. We don't know why, because he was doing it in a basement laboratory, but he was yeah. fine. And so that's how we know about phosphorus. Um, and I mean, it turns what a out, hero. Yeah, well, he's such a hero that the pea-boiling method was the standard for making phosphorus <laughs> for about 100 years after he died. Oh my god, that sucks. It does <laughs> suck. <laughs> Like, this guy, like, just fucked around with pee so much, he made, like, two, three generations of scientists after him have to do the same. Like, there must be easier ways to get a phosphorus, but just because, yeah. like, nobody bothered coming up with a new one, they're like, oh, I'll just use Hennig, what are you, too good for Hennig Brands now? <laughs> Well, I did the find out process? that eventually they figured out that they didn't have to age the pea first and they could just boil it right away. <laughs> 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 oh, no. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, and that, that took them, like, you know that took them, like, a generation so long to figure to out. Figure out. <laughs> It turns out aging the pee adds nothing to this person. <laughs> oh no, oh, Annie, no. what have you done? Okay, so, well, uh, so yeah. <laughs> so eventually, they did figure out that there's a lot of phosphorus in like bone, and so they could just experiment on bone instead of pee. Um, and, yep. but, and it turns out that today we actually use a pretty similar process to what he did, but instead of boiling pee, we, you do that same process on, like, phosphorus ore that is mined from the ground. So it's a lot less stinky now, but we're still using the same principles of what he did, like, today. So, like, what a hero. Yep. <laughs> what an okay. underrated hero. All right. So, you know, that just goes to show anyone can be a scientist. If you're really into boiling pee for whatever reason, <laughs> you can be a scientist. <laughs> you right? too. Just, well, like, just because you're Let's into weird, <laughs> nasty shit doesn't mean you can't discover new science. Take your skills and apply them to science and contribute <laughs> to the scientific discoveries. Okay. All right. Yeah. And to cap off our little story about Hennig Brandt. Um, he tried to keep the recipe for phosphorus a secret, but eventually he ran out of money. I wonder why. As you do. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, honey, where are you getting all this phosphorus? Don't worry about it. 
of money. And so he sold the formula to another alchemist, and that passed through a bunch of different hands. It eventually ended up into the hands of Robert Boyle, who you might have heard of as, like, one of the founding fathers of modern chemistry. I haven't, so, but I love the idea of, like, I want to see the movie where, like, like Henning Brandt's, like, lifelong nemesis <laughs> in alchemy is like, oh, I just can't figure out the Brandt process, and, like, and he just, like, spends his whole life, like, trying to sneak into Henning's lab, and he's always being thwarted. And then Henning falls on hard times, and he's, like, rubbing his hands together, he's like, finally. I'm gonna get the brand process for me and then it turns out it's just piss <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's like, oh man, I should have known Yeah, should've exactly known. I should have known Brandt's a nasty fuck <laughs> Alright, okay Well, that's enough about Hennig Brandt Yeah, so, I mean, what a crazy story And to, to cap off that story Boyle was such a fanatic about alchemy That he actually lobbied to repeal a law That existed at the time in England um, and it was this law that said that multiplying gold and silver was illegal, uh, which was put in place by Henry VI back in 1404, apparently because he was worried that an alchemist with an unlimited amount of gold could, could tank the economy. his government. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, a reasonable issue. And like, so, so Boyle, who became a chemist, was like lobbying for laws to change about alchemy. That's funny. Yeah. So, you know, we think of it as a pretty weird idea today, but people were like pretty convinced that this would happen back yeah. in the day so much so it was like that they inevitable were like, yeah we have to outlaw it but yeah so that's the story of how phosphorus was discovered wow <laughs> Wild. And, and became real chemistry well that's cool yeah. yeah so what are you thinking about it so far like alchemists are pretty pretty cool bunch right yeah i think absolutely they're cool yeah for sure yeah so that was sort of the more chemical oriented bit of alchemy um but i thought we could talk next about the alchemy of the body which is oh, pretty cool. Nice. Are we going to have a little break before then? Yeah. So we'll take a little break. And then when we come back, alchemy of the body, baby. Alchemy of the body. Hello, and welcome to the middle part of the show. This is the time, if you haven't listened before, where Taryn and I usually either have a guest or we play a game with our producer, Nula. Or uh, last time, uh, we announced our first competition where uh, listeners could write reviews and have the opportunity to win some sweet cold hard cash and also uh, choose the episode topic for an upcoming episode of the show. So this month, instead of having an interview on one of those games, we are announcing the winner and therefore also announcing an upcoming, upcoming topic of the uncertainty principle. We had some cool suggestions across various iTunes stores around the planet, uh, but I have pulled out Taryn and my favorite here after a consultation that we had just before recording this episode. So uh, we're proud and excited to announce that the winner is JJ Rivera, uh, who suggested an episode topic about the internet, which is very, very cool. Um, I'm going to be researching that one, and I'm very excited about it. So if that is you, congratulations. Well done. You've got 50 Australian dollars coming your way. Uh, go ahead and email me at ben at curionetwork.com uh, to go ahead and we'll figure out how to verify that that is actually you and how to get that money to you. Um, okay, great. Thank you very much for listening. If you're enjoying the show, uh, as we always mention at the end, please, it's really helpful if you leave us a rating or a review. Uh, unfortunately, we're not running a competition anymore, but you can still suggest episode topics. We are always on the lookout for those. We might still take them. Uh, so go ahead, write us a rating review, or just get in touch with us on one of the social media platforms. Uh, okay, great. Thanks. Back to the episode. Enjoy the rest. All right, Taryn. 
Well, congratulations to the winner of our competition. Uh, that so was cool. exciting. I'm very excited to do that next episode about the internet. That's cool. Um, yeah. I guess I'm researching that one. That's a sick topic idea. I'm already excited thinking about it. Um, yeah, we'll come up with something fun. But in the meantime, we're talking about alchemy of the body, are we? What does that mean? It sounds like a like an album title. <laughs> it does a bit. But it, it's sort of, you know, I feel like the we talked about the Philosopher's Stone before where it's a lot of it is about transforming base metals into gold, but then there was this other element where people thought it could basically make you immortal. And so there was this whole other branch of alchemy that was much mm. more focused on not so much the chemicals and changing metals, but, you know, what was happening within our body and how could we live forever, essentially. So in the context of this, I'm going to talk about one particular alchemist whose name was uh, Paracelsus. Oh, was, I feel like yeah. I've heard that name before. Oh, well, he was like involved in a lot of different things, not just alchemy. And he was so he was born around the end of the 1400s in Switzerland. And his big thing was taking the principles of alchemy and applying it to the study of the body. So if we go back to the idea of purity from earlier, where, you know, gold was this spiritually and physically pure substance, Paracelsus thought the purpose of the human body was to separate the pure from the impure. So your organs were sort of like huh. little alchemists inside of you. Oh, I hate Which thinking is... about it like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, lucky for you, it's not accurate. Mm. But in, you know, thinking about these things, he actually had some major findings about a lot of different things. But I want to talk first about toxicology. And so his, like, major finding in this area was that whether or not something is a poison is dependent on the dose. So, like, how much of it you have. Right. So, Good yeah. theory. So, like, for example, Ben, have you ever, like, accidentally been eating an apple and, like, had some of the core or one of the seeds? Yeah, and then died of cyanide poisoning. <laughs> No, the point is that you didn't die. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sorry so for those to who don't know, <laughs> I learned this recently. I didn't know this before, but apparently apple seeds have this chemical compound called amygdalin that when you digest it, it degrades into hydrogen cyanide, which can definitely kill you. But you'd have to eat something between like 100 and 1,000 apple seeds for it to be a lethal dose. So right, like, yeah. I feel like that's just like not a thing gonna people, happen. people say to you on the schoolyard. Is it like, oh, don't eat that. It's got, it's got cyanide in it. You'll die. But it's like... Like, you'd need to eat a lot. Or like that thing where like, um, you know what a Tim Tam is, right, Taryn? You've been in Australia uh, yes. long enough. Have I had a Tim Tam? I've had a Tim Tam before. Yeah, right. So, you know, there's like the um, alcoholic Tim Tams and everyone's like, oh, there's, why is there? There's pink? alcoholic Tim Tams? Yeah, well, there were at least at one point released like alcoholic Tim Tams. And it was like, what, damn, if, I, I what if I blow over from like, you know, on a, on a breath test from, from eating the Tim Tams? And it was like, <laughs> you'd have to eat 350 Tim Tams. <laughs> <laughs> Which, listen, if I was having a really bad day, could I do it? Maybe. Yeah, they are definitely but, Australia's greatest contribution to food culture. But anyway. Oh, for sure. I love that you guys were talking about apple seeds and, like, cyanide. I feel like that's very advanced. Because what we were talking about in the schoolyard was, like, if you eat a watermelon seed, then it'll, like, grow inside your stomach and you'll have, like, a, a watermelon in your stomach. That was, like, a big concern. You'll I have a like, watermelon baby. Six. Yeah. Yeah. That was, like, a real thing that we worried about. Well... <laughs> 
let's have a hand for the American education system. Anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> tell me about Paracelsus and what he did, his, all his great So stuff. yeah, so basically, to, to return to the idea of Paracelsus is that, you know, sometimes a little bit of something is okay, but a lot can kill you. I mean, that's mm. even true of water. Like, you can technically yeah. die if you drink too much water. Yeah, so, my, like, my brother nearly died of water poisoning when we were kids. Like, he drank really? too much water and he, well, I don't know about nearly died, but like a doctor had to come because he like fucked up all the like salt <laughs> levels in his body and he was like, yeah. <laughs> he had like water toxicity. Yeah, it's like a real that's thing. That's insane. But it's insane because we need water. Like, clearly Shout it's not. Shout out to Jake. I just fucking absolutely ripped you. <laughs> 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 anyway. Uh, but yeah, so he was he was basically playing with this, this idea of dosage because at the time he was investigating the use of different substances as medicines and his contemporaries thought that he was crazy and that he was using things that were too toxic to be medicines, but he said, no, it's dependent on the dose. And that totally holds today. Yeah, smart guy. Yeah. So for example, when, if you're like a company trying to develop like a medical drug, then they use a thing called a dose response curve to try and figure out where the sweet spot is of dosage where a drug is useful versus when it becomes like having negative effects or even becoming deadly. So like, we're still using these principles today, which is like pretty cool. Uh, that this guy came up with it. Um, and also he progressed some ideas at the time around disease and treatment because, you know, earlier and sort of at the time, there was a lo- an idea of disease that came from like Hippocrates. So like way back that disease, like when you were sick, it wasn't caused by an infection. They didn't have a concept mm. of infection, Gems, but they, right? yeah, they didn't have germ theory. They didn't know what they were. So they had this idea of the so-called Four humors yep. that were um, blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. I mean, <laughs> yums. Yeah. <laughs> and so you had to like balance those humors, and when you were they were unbalanced, you had to like put them back into balance. And so that's where you get things like bloodletting, where they were like, "Oh, he's got too much blood in him. You gotta let some yeah, out." Yeah, yeah. So, balance those humors, so, baby. Yeah, which you know terrible idea but paracelsus was like no bloodletting isn't going to help because the disease is its own entity rather than being this internal imbalance and therefore you can fight a disease with targeted medicines rather than trying these cure-all things of bloodletting that could solve you know a cold or any variety of different illnesses so yeah, pretty right. huge stuff yeah yeah wow so he was like way ahead of his time and like actually doing like realistic ideas Yeah, okay, but, like, so he wasn't perfect. So, for example, some of the things he was investigating with that, you know, low dosage thing were things like mercury and lead, which are actually poisonous and and probably should not be used as medicine. Yeah, Um, But nevertheless, yeah, you're right. He made some really important contributions to medical advances. So, like, Anya, Anya Paracelsus. Yeah, cool guy Paracelsus. So, yeah, so those are, like, the two stories that I really wanted to touch on because I think it was good examples of, like, the different things that alchemy was trying to do. I'll never be able to capture the breadth of it, but I want to go back to actually something you mentioned right at the top. And I was like, Ben, you d- you don't see my notes beforehand. How yeah. could you know? But what I want to talk about is, like, how years later – Nuclear physicists are regularly doing what the alchemists hey! were trying to do. Yeah, nice. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone's making gold out of it, but like, yeah, well. we are transmuting things. Oh, really? Tell me more. Uh-huh. So, yeah. So, but just to, I guess, 
go back to basics because you are somebody who's familiar with this stuff, but I what? had to look it all up because I'm, <laughs> I'm not a physicist. But what the alchemists were calling transmutation, which is changing one element into another, is what happens inside a nuclear reactor, right? So yeah. you have uranium, it goes through a nuclear reaction, and it breaks down into smaller atoms of things like xenon or strontium. That's transmutation. Like, they're doing it. Yeah. Um, and in fact, the story goes that in 1901, when the physicists Frederick Soddy and Ernest Rutherford um, discovered that radioactive elements were decaying and transforming from one element into another, apparently Soddy yelled out, Rutherford, this is transmutation. And then Rutherford goes, for Christ's sake, Soddy, don't call it transmutation. They'll have our heads off as alchemists. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> they were aware of the fact that they were doing what the alchemists were trying to do. So, like, yeah. could we call nuclear physicists? Alchemists? Could we do that? Would they I like mean, that? Like by any reasonable definition, I think so, right? I mean, like the yeah. I, I, I guess the point is that like Rutherford and, and, and Saudi were not actually doing anything to make that happen. They were just observing the fact that it was happening naturally, right? Like these elements yeah. were decaying. So yeah, uranium, as you said, breaks down into two other elements, and that's like, yeah, okay, chemical transmutation, I suppose. Um but like yeah, they, they weren't making it happen. Although you can make it happen. In fact, like it's it's also mm -hmm. how the, it's also how the sun works. For what it's worth, <laughs> like the sun Hell works yeah. by taking hydrogen and smooshing hydrogen atoms together until you get helium atoms and like heavier atoms and shit. So like, yeah, I mean every every element that's in your body was like forged in a star and or in a, like an explosion of a star, and it was forged through transmutation, like through smaller elements combining and becoming bigger elements. So like, yeah, I mean, all actually yes. come come to think of it. All of the gold in the universe was actually formed by transmutation. <laughs> so I guess, Hell yes. I guess what we're saying is alchemy is real. <laughs> it's, it's like a real thing you can actually do. Like if you, if you make a nuclear fusion reactor, like um, like we're trying to do in order to generate like free clean energy, we'll do an episode mm -hmm. about nuclear fusion. Actually, one of the like um earliest episodes, one of the lost tapes, if you will, was all about like nuclear reactions. The lost tapes. Um, yeah, but, but the forbidden um, history of well, just from like the, the uncertainty the, principle from like the live, like the first fringe that we did. Like it was like oh, a, li yeah, a live, a live episode. That. Um, oh. But I don't know. I listened back to it, and I like I don't know. There's been some some changes in that world in the last like couple of years since we recorded it at Fringe. So I didn't nah. want to release it, but we'll we'll do like a fresh studio episode about nuclear stuff at some point because it is very interesting. Yeah, that'd be fun. But yeah, so like it's just cool that like we're doing what the alchemists were trying to do. Yeah. Totally different. Once methods. again, physicists fucking rolled in and just are like, this is our game now, <laughs> <laughs> you idiots. <laughs> we got it. We'll take it from here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Back this off. This is no longer your jurisdiction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like Special Agent Johnson in Die Hard. They yeah. just roll in and be like, I'll take it from here, chemists. Uh, what do you want to do? You want to make some elements into some other elements? All right, stand back. <laughs> it's physics time. Yeah. So And so the story I want to tell is about some physicists who apparently still had a kick for the whole lead to gold idea. And so there's a story from the 1980s where there were some physicists who were like, let's give it a go. Let's make gold. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's do what the alchemists were trying to do. So um, you'll probably be familiar with the technology they used, Ben, because they were using um, a particle accelerator to make hey. this. Um, and so... A little bit of elementary 
physics for people like me who don't know this stuff. So how it works is um, elements are defined by how many they how many protons they have in their nuclei. So how many positively charged protons they have in their nuclei. They might not be correct entirely, but it's a basic understanding. No, no, no. Yeah, that's, that's the definition. Oh, it is. I thought so, that was so, disapproving. No, well, no, no. So, so atoms, yeah, atoms are made up of like a little nucleus of positive charge, which are made of these things called protons and neutrons. And then there's a cloud of negatively charged particles outside them that are called electrons. And yeah, we just like, we, we define one element versus another element by how many of the positively charged things are in the nucleus. It's just like, if you've got one proton, it doesn't matter what else you've got going on. It's hydrogen. If you've got two protons, it doesn't matter what else is going on. You've got helium. Yeah, exactly. So it turns out that lead has 82 protons, but gold only has 79. So if you wanted to turn lead into gold, then you'd have to be able to remove three protons from it. Yeah. But the forces that hold together a nucleus are like mm. really, really strong. Very and that's strong not, yeah. they're strong boys. So it's not like simple to do. So it turns out that one way to overcome this force is to use a particle accelerator. And this is a machine that uses electromagnetic fields to propel charged particles to really, really high speeds. And so like a famous one that you might have heard of is called CERN. It's in Switzerland. And that's a kind of well, accelerator okay. just, called just a... Just a very subtle point. The, the the collider is called the Large Hadron Collider, the LHC. CERN uh... is like the organization that administers it, but go on. Okay, thank you. And so the uh, the one that's in Switzerland is a collider particle accelerator which basically means that they use it to make particles collide at really, really high speeds. And when you do that, it can affect the number of protons within an atom, which yeah, is great like, if you're trying to turn lead to gold. It's similar to like how the sun works. Again, like you just you just smash these things into each other like wet, like hard enough that you overcome like the forces that bind the nuclei together and you can essentially like break and reform the nuclei with like different numbers of protons in them. Yeah, yeah. So it, the story goes that in the 80s, there were these three scientists called Seaborg, Loveland, and Morrissey, and they were at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab in California, and they thought, why not try and create gold from another element? So they originally thought of using lead, but they actually decided to use bismuth. It's the element that has one more proton than lead. Um, it's actually used in medicines like Pepto-Bismol. I did not know that. Mm, I guess right. that's where the name comes from. Yeah, probably. But the reason that they use bismuth over lead is simply because it would just make their lives easier at the other end of the experiment. So the technique they used would have worked perfectly well on lead, but they would need to be able to separate the gold out they produced from the element they were using. And it turns out that uh, bismuth is easier to separate out from gold than lead. So right. they decided to use bismuth, but it would have worked if they used lead. So what they did is they had this thin foil of bismuth. And they accelerated the nuclei of carbon and neon at the foil to, like, nearly light speed. And, I mean, you described it really well earlier. I guess I thought the process would be, like, a little more, like, nuanced and subtle. But they're basically just, like, like flinging these nuclei at the foil. And when a nucleus would hit a bismuth atom, it would slice off a piece of the atom. And sometimes it would take a bigger slice, and sometimes it would take a smaller slice. And when you fling enough nuclei at the bismuth, then, like, statistically, a certain amount of those times, it'll slice off four protons and create gold. Yeah, so, nice. Yeah, it's so cool. I mean, uh, but in terms of, like volume that they produce. It's the scale of an atom. Yeah, and sure. so they would have to examine the scraps of what was left over after the experiment, find these tiny, tiny traces of gold. And they estimated that was probably around a few thousand atoms that they were able to, like, transmute. 
Yeah, they really just did it because they thought it was cool, not because they were actually making reasonable amounts of gold. Yeah, so, yeah, the note here is that it's not, like, some get-rich-quick scheme, the one that, like, King Henry was worried about back in the 1400s. You know, this wasn't an experiment designed to make these physicists wealthy. In fact, one of the experimenters from that time in the 80s estimated that it would cost more than one quadrillion dollars per ounce to create gold in that method. <laughs> yeah, right. So if you think gold price is bad now, I mean, yeah. Well, at the time, it was $560 an ounce. So super not economical. But it was really cool way for them to first prove that this worked and then learn some new properties about physics. So I think that's cool enough for me. Yeah, that's very cool. So that's it. That's all I have been. That's oh. alchemy in a nutshell. I hope you've learned some things. I had so much fun putting this episode together. Yeah. I, I mean, I loved learning and or just kind of realizing that like, yeah, alchemy is kind of real in the sense that gold and other elements are made by changing other elements. Like the universe made hydrogen and then we smash a bunch of hydrogen together and we get other stuff. That's cool. Yeah, and I also really liked um, just, like, the stories of, like, how it all came together. Because I always hated the section of a science textbook where it would be, like, some guy named John probably discovered something a long time ago. Yeah. And there's no, like, interesting context. Like, did you know he boiled a bunch yeah, of pee? Yeah, you got to learn that he's a nasty pee boy. That's right. That's Like, why don't they tell us this stuff? Yeah. It would make it so much more interesting. And now I'm never going to yeah, forget the story of how phosphorus was never discovered. Never going to forget how phosphorus was discovered. And the fact that they, yeah. they didn't realize until decades later that they didn't need to let the pee rot. <laughs> Anywho, um, thank you so much for teaching me about alchemy, Taryn. And thank you, dear listener, for tuning in once again to The Uncertainty Principle. I so certainly hope you've learned something as I have and as Taryn did putting it together. Yeah, what, a, what fun. I, I'm just so, I'm, I'm grateful for the alchemists. Thank you for teaching me some stuff. Yeah, this is a very fun one. Hey, if you enjoyed it, uh, please go ahead and let us know. Get in touch. You can get in touch with us on any of the social media platforms, either at Curio Network or at PrincipalCast. Uh, you can leave us a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever you listen if you want to suggest an episode topic or just tell us how much you like the show. And please go ahead and share the show with a friend. Uh, that's, that's the easiest way to help us grow and to help us expand. Yes, please. We would love it. And if you want to get in touch, you can get me at Dr. BT McAllister on Twitter. And I'm at Science Terran. Well, now that we've got all that out of the way, Taryn, you know how we end this show every time. <laughs> so sure. thanks thanks for listening. And until next time. Stay, stay uncertain. uncertain. Hey. <laughs> 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 <laughs>